0: to the final segment of our journey along the Celtic Way. Again, I'm Kathy Twan McLean, and it's been an honor to be one of your guides during this pilgrimage and to journey through these stories together. After all, what is pilgrimage but a journey to a story? Not just any story, but one that speaks to our deepest heart desires and is rooted in God. A traditional pilgrimage journeys into the places and stories connected with saints whose lives and intimacy with God we long to learn from. And that's a lot of what we've been doing on this Celtic Way. However, pilgrimage can also be a journey towards other kinds of places and stories that shape us. Perhaps the place of a family story, or an event in history, or the birthplace of an author. No matter why we go or whose story we explore, we go on pilgrimage to center our story in God. As we journey to significant places, our lives intersect with others in profound ways, and we come to understand more about our true story grounded in the kingdom of God. Today, we're going to dig even deeper into the significance of story in our own lives. To do that, we're going to leave Ireland and travel to a remote island off the western coast of Scotland in the Inner Hebrides, where we'll encounter the final saint we'll meet along the Celtic Way, Columba, a priest, scholar, and poet who founded more than 40 monasteries in Ireland before being exiled to Scotland. Getting to Iona today includes two ferry rides and a drive across the Isle of Mull. After a full day of travel from Scotland's mainland, you finally reach the storied Isle of Iona. Visitors are drawn by the spiritual roots of this remote island and the layers of story it holds. In the year 563, upon being exiled from Ireland, Columba landed on its shores, and eventually founded a monastery whose influence spread far beyond the small island. But if you're looking for quiet and solitude, Iona may not be the best place to go these days, especially in the warmer months. The small island can become overrun with the crowds that flock there, drawn by its mystique. However, whether in the midst of the village center or on a pebbled beach, many visitors find that they do encounter new parts of their story. When you venture away from the town and the people, you encounter the wild beauty of the landscape. When the wind rises, it reveals the fierce nature of this small island, only three miles long and one mile wide. The rugged, exposed scenery reveals the rugged places in our own stories that need tending. It's as if the island gives permission to enter more deeply into the raw and unprocessed parts of your story that you bring to it. As always, we're going to prepare to enter in with our sensory warm-up today. Hopefully by now you're getting used to the practice of becoming attentive to your senses. And you've recognized how doing so helps you become present to the moment you're in. Where do you find yourself walking at this moment? Is it a place you're rather familiar with and know well? A place where a few scenes of your own story have been written? Today, we're going to practice a different kind of awareness in this particular place and we're going to try connecting our senses with our imagination. It can be a challenge for us adults to use our imaginations as freely as we once did in childhood. Even so, I hope this experiment draws you into that imaginative freedom in which children can transform any location into the place they want to be. So let's first take a moment to settle in.
1: Take some deep breaths. Take a few more.
0: Now scan your surroundings. What is one thing you
1: see? What is one thing you hear? What is one thing you smell? What is one thing you feel on your skin? What is one thing you taste? Take one more deep breath.
0: Okay, let's start imagining. As you take in all of your surroundings, consider this place and its history. Imagine time going in reverse moving backwards about a decade every several seconds. Let your mind's eye paint the scene on top of what you actually see. You may or may not know the actual history. Either way is okay. Remember, this is the time for your imagination to play. If you want, you can pause this rolling back of time at any point to consider a particular error more closely. What do you notice about how the built environment changes back in time? If you're around buildings, How is the architecture different back then? Are the buildings even there yet in the era you're imagining? If you're farther out in nature somewhere, how are the trees and landscape different? Are there people around in your imagined scene? If so, notice how their clothing and style change as you move back through time. Whose stories may have intersected at this exact spot where you find yourself today? Give yourself permission to be creative and imagine a story. What is the story of this place? What do you imagine it has seen throughout the years? attention to yourself. How has this place played into your own story? Finally, consider how God was at work in these stories. How do you imagine God was present in the story of the place you're in? How have you experienced God's presence in your story in this place? Our stories shape how we live our lives. The question is not whether we have a story. We are all living out a story that we believe about ourselves. The question is, is it a good story? Is it a true story? Does our story bring us and others life? Let's dive into this idea of understanding our true story and listen to someone finding her way into a new story. Jamie Noyd is the Area Ministry Director for Graduate and Faculty Ministries in the Ohio
1: Valley.
2: 10 years ago, my mom planted a tree, a red oak in our front yard. The first years, the leaves and fall were a brilliant red. Then two years after my mom passed away, the leaves withered and fell in the middle of the summer. I felt a visceral need to save this tree. I gave it extra fertilizer and made sure it had plenty of water. Even so, each year one more branch lacked leaves. The fall color dimmed. Something was wrong. I was reluctant to hear the truth about this tree, afraid of the grief that would reemerge if it had to be removed. Even so, I finally scheduled a consultation with an arborist, and he confirmed that given its age, the tree should have been many feet taller with larger and fuller branches. The problem? The roots were planted too deep. They didn't have sufficient access to air, to fertilizer. The nourishment needed to grow. They could also be stagnating in accumulated water in the clay soil. In short, the tree could just barely survive. This wasn't only happening to the tree. It's what I saw happening in my life. The roots of my family, the stories they hold, have been deeply shrouded and protected. In this secrecy, there wasn't much room for growth. Most of my energy was spent in holding tightly to these layers of stories, along with ones I created for myself, even if they were false. It was safe this way. Unlike Celtic pilgrims, I had no thought of letting go and heading out on the unknown sea in a small boat. Then, a year ago, a friend was teasing me as we were chatting about some travel plans. Unknowingly, she hit upon and exposed a deeper, truer story, a desire for intimate companionship that I had kept hidden. Quickly, I shut her down. I told her not to talk of it, and I refortified the safe story that I was a thoughtful scholar, a faithful Christian, and an independent woman. All good things, but for me, ways to cover up desire and pain and God's real presence in my life. As I shut her out, this protective stance started to wither yet another friendship. Over the coming months, I realized these false stories were holding me back from truly engaging with the people around me, people I loved. For all my attempts at control, I couldn't make the stories I was authoring happen and the heart of life seemed to fade away. So what to do? For the red oak, it was time to remove the old tree and plant one with roots properly exposed. The new tree will now provide shade for friends to sit under, branches for bird nests, and a playground for squirrels. I was surprised that this did not elicit grief, but a renewed thankfulness and love from my mother. She would have been so happy. For me, I don't have the option to completely change out my life, at least not on my own. But I started excavating, digging out the dirt packed around my roots and inhibiting my growth. I called up friends and started sharing longings and fears without taking refuge in my usual answers or protective narratives. I also spent time immersed in God's word, allowing his story to surround and fill me like never before. Months later, I sat in the middle of an arboretum with my friend. With the wall broken down between us, tears came as I spoke of lost dreams and a desire for family. Laughter came as I shared and accepted my failings. Peace came when in the truth of these stories, Jesus's presence entered through prayer. All this while a quiet breeze blew around us through the empty branches of winter. No longer grasping those false stories, I was becoming free. My heart was starting to open again. It's messy, but now I'm seeing stories rooted in God's presence, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in the pain and in the joy. That afternoon, I shared a poem from Diary of an Old Soul by George MacDonald, a Scottish poet. But when I turn and grasp the making hand, and will the making will with confidence. I ride the crest of the creation wave helpless. No more, no more existences slave in the heart of love's creating fire. I stand and love possessed in heart and soul and sense take up the making share the making master gave. I am grateful for the stories of so many companions along the way. Family, friends, characters in novels, authors, men and women in scripture, all stories that are pointing to the true story, one authored by Jesus and in which we don't have to hide any parts of ourselves. He heals the wounded places as we reveal them. In this way, the Spirit reorients us in our wanderings so that we stand in love's creating fire, the heart of God's story. Today, as I look at the new red oak, many healthy leaves are unfolding. I'm eager to see how this tree takes shape now that it can breathe. And I'm expectant about the next leaves in my story as I open my heart to the truth and give over the writing to the author and perfecter of our faith.
0: Jamie shared in her story, when our stories are cloaked in lies, when they're rooted in secrecy or skeletons in the family closet, we choke and wither. Like the red oak and Jamie, we can't grow and flourish. This reality is born out in the very structures of our brains. Kurt Thompson a psychiatrist and founder of the Center for Being Known, explores this in his book The Soul of Shame. Shame, that feeling Adam and Eve had in response to disobeying God, tells us that we are not enough or that something is wrong with us. It also makes us feel that we're powerless to change. Thompson explains that shame disrupts the brain's process of regulating the flow of energy and information. Essentially, it disconnects the various functions of the mind from one another. And in turn, it inhibits our ability to creatively and fully engage with the world and people around us. That's one powerful emotion. The messages that shame implants in our lives become central to the false narratives in which we live. Eventually, they can erode our mental health as individuals and our functioning as communities. Out of the disconnection that shame creates, we find broken dreams, fractured relationships, and disintegrating systems. We can't live the creative, joy-filled lives God created us for. Our natural response to shame is to hide. And yet the antidote to shame is not hiding from these stories, but actually sharing them with others and nurturing communities. As we reveal shameful parts of our stories and hear the stories of others, Thompson says several neurobiological events are put into motion that begin to knit together different functional parts of our minds. Sharing our story, having our stories heard in love, actually changes our brain circuitry. Revealing our stories to one another allows us to reframe our guiding narratives so that we can hear and live out of the truth that we are God's sons and daughters with whom He is well pleased. During a previous walk together, we saw how God's plan, right from your very beginning, is for you to flourish from tiny acorn to mighty oak. So, as you've just heard Jamie's story about her withering tree, both literal and figurative, how do you respond? Are there ways you notice yourself clinging to false narratives that are causing you to wither? Do you recognize ways that shame is making you believe you can never change? Without being overly critical, I invite you to simply consider the story you tell yourself with curiosity. As the music plays for a little while, gently hold these things before God. When you feel ready, use your own words to invite God to be the master arborist, the loving tree doctor, whether that means God decides to prune a few branches or expose your roots to nutrients and water. Columba's early life had it all. Born into a noble clan of the most powerful kings in Ireland, Columba was educated in the bardic tradition of his ancestors. In that day, bards or poets were one of the highest castes in Ireland. He was taught by Bishop Finian of Clonard, who is considered one of the fathers of Irish monasticism. His work with the bishop likely included reading and copying manuscripts of both religious and secular texts. Columba came to know God's story through his love of poetry, books, and learning, and founded as many as 41 monasteries throughout Ireland, monasteries where others could pursue similar education in God's Word. However, Columba's love for books and God's Word got him into trouble. Tradition has it that Columba copied the bishop's Psalter, or Book of Psalms, then took this copy from the monastery without permission. Perhaps he wanted to teach others from it, or use it for his own devotions. Either way, Bishop Finian was furious, calling his action theft. Columba was brought before the king and forced to return the copy. We don't know why, but several years later, Columba left Ireland for Iona. His earliest biographer simply says that Columba chose to pursue Peregrinatio for Christ. However, other traditions weave a more dramatic story. It is said that the king ordered one of Columba's followers killed. Columba, enraged and still feeling humiliated from having to return his book, sought revenge. He gathered his kinsmen to fight against the king's forces and completely defeated them. The infamous Psalter was even among the spoils of this war. Yet his victory was hollow. Because Columba, a monk, had taken up arms and shed blood, he had to undergo penance. In this case, that meant exile from his beloved Ireland. Usually we think of penance as an action, often a punishment, to atone or make up for wrongdoing or sin. However, penance in the Celtic tradition is not about punishment. For Celtic Christians, penance is about healing. Actions taken in penance are an embodied way of participating in God's healing work. They are done in the hope that the soul will find wholeness. Whether Columba chose exile or it was imposed on him, he sailed just far enough from Ireland so that he couldn't see it anymore. Columba went from living in a land where he had a thriving ministry and a powerful family to the remote island of Iona, where he had to begin again. He went from a narrative of strength and dominance to one of uncertainty. Uprooted, he had to enter a different story, a story whose roots were planted squarely in his own failure and shame. Like Columba, King David also faced deep failure and shame. After rising from humble beginnings as a shepherd boy all the way to his prominent position as king, he repeatedly abused his authority. Ultimately, his moral compass led him to bloodshed. First, he opted out of fighting in a war alongside his countrymen and instead stayed home. While there, he watched as Bathsheba, another man's wife, bathed on a rooftop. He decided he wanted her brought to him, and Bathsheba, really having no choice in the matter, could not say no to the king. When his actions resulted in her pregnancy, David plotted his way out. Eventually, at the end of all his scheming so he didn't have to own his shame, David sent Bathsheba's husband into a battle scenario where he would surely die thus playing a role in the man's murder. Although I haven't committed adultery, murdered someone, or started wars, I can relate to both Columba and King David in using my power to oppress others. In my case, the worst situation was with my own children. For 14 years, I experienced what I now call my dark night of the soul, also known as raising young children. I really struggled with rage, and when I couldn't control my temper, I felt constant and persistent shame. Like David said in Psalm 51 after he finally acknowledged the truth about his sin, I would often say, My sin is ever before me. Even if I couldn't forgive myself, I did several things right. I kept telling God my truth, I journaled, I confessed failure to my husband and trusted friends. I saw a spiritual director every month. For many years, I went up for inner healing prayer nearly every Sunday at church. I may not have been able to mother the way I wished I could, but I kept pressing into God's love and telling the truth of my messy story. And like David and Columba and so many others, I experienced how telling the truth of my story, confessing the deep brokenness in my life, actually breaks the power of shame and opens the way to healing and peace let's take time now to explore for ourselves the celtic tradition of penance as a path to healing using david's familiar psalm of confession it's a psalm in which he passionately admits his failure knowing he can safely do so before a merciful god it's a psalm in which he seeks to restore his broken relationship with god not by promising to do better outwardly in the future, but by inviting God to bring inner healing. Let's journey toward God now with David's words in Psalm 51.
3: Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin.
0: As you come before God, First, spend some time remembering who this God is. This is the Lord who is above all gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Rest in that unfailing love that meets you just as you are.
3: For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place.
0: How life-giving it is to not have to hide from God, to not have to pretend to be anything other than what we are. Take the next few moments to say what you need to say to God, with whom it's safe to expose the parts of you that are rough or raw or feel shameful.
3: Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me.
0: We can trust and hope in the promise that God will purify our hearts and renew our souls, and that this isn't our work to do. God's the one who will restore the joy of our salvation. Ask God now to do the work your soul needs. You might invite God to cleanse your heart or infuse your soul with joy and gladness, or welcome God's spirit into a part of your life where it's felt absent.
3: Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it, You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar.
0: A fitting response when we experience deep healing and forgiveness is to open our mouths with grateful praise and to invite others into this newfound freedom. Let your heart respond now with praise, whether that's with words or even song. Consider too, whether there's someone with whom it would be a blessing to share any healing in your story that you might have experienced recently. Jesus was an expert at guiding people into seeing the truth of their stories. Let's listen now to a time when, just a day after religious leaders were questioning who this new troublemaker in town was, Jesus took audacious action to transform someone's story.
3: John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, and leave your life of sin.
0: A crowd surrounds Jesus in the temple. Most are eager to hear how he's telling God's story. Instead of focusing on the limits of the law, however, Jesus tells a story of returning to the heart of God's love and mercy. It's a story as old as the Torah, and yet it feels fresh and new. Some who gather there, the religious leaders, have another purpose. Jesus' story of God threatens the story they've told themselves, a story of boundaries and limits that serves to bolster their own power and standing in the community. Jesus' story shatters their safe and well-known story. Surely he emphasizes love and mercy a bit too much. What about the law and truth? So these religious leaders hatch a plan, a plan that will tear apart Jesus' teaching they drag in a woman caught in adultery. Of course, if their true motivation was justice, they would have also brought in the man who was her partner in adultery and equally guilty before the law. But this woman alone would be a convenient means to their end. Surely all of Jesus' talk of love and forgiveness can't contradict Moses' clear edict condemning her to death. Jesus has also started to speak as if he was the Messiah. How can he claim that if he refuses to follow the law and have this woman stoned? And if he doesn't stone her? Well then, they have what they need to accuse him of teaching outside of the law. Yet, instead of debating, Jesus simply invites them to reflect on their own story. Who here is without sin? He asks. With this simple question, Jesus changes the narrative. Look at your story. Who of you is without sin? No one knows what Jesus wrote on the ground. Some speculate he wrote the names of all those religious leaders and their sins. Others that he wrote the word forgiveness. I wonder what happened within each of these accusers. Did their sins flood into their minds? Were they overcome with shame? None of these religious leaders confess that day. No one turns to the words of Psalm 51 for hope and comfort. Instead, they just leave, beginning with the oldest. Maybe the more life is lived, the more quickly we recognize how we've fallen and failed. But recognizing their sin doesn't translate into the wisdom and courage to stay with Jesus. Instead of letting Jesus into their stories, they just leave. Eventually, only the woman remains. The facts of her story haven't changed. It's clear she has sinned. Yet standing alone before Jesus, her life laid bare, she's not condemned or killed. Instead, Jesus forgives her and offers her a new life, a new story. He transforms her story and sets her free. And that's what Jesus does for us, too. After that dramatic event, as Jesus teaches his followers, he says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set us free. As we embrace the true story Jesus is telling, we learn the truth of our own stories. Like the woman, when we stand before Jesus with our life and story laid bare, he's there to save, not to condemn us. Jesus cuts through our avoidance and defensiveness and invites us to face the shame that we avoid. He invites us to lay down our attempts to shape, control, and make our stories perfect. When we surrender the stories we're writing and let Jesus author a new story, we find that it's rooted in his deep love for us. Our stories are transformed by the love and mercy of Jesus, who sets us free to live into a bigger and truer story. on Iona, Columba can no longer see Ireland, his beloved homeland. Did he regret his actions during the battle? Did he see himself as a failure? Did he grieve? We don't know the internal musings of his spirit. Likely at some point in his journey, stripped of the privileges of home, he realized all he could turn to was Jesus, the one who could rewrite this story. We can only wonder how he transitioned from this period of deep loss. Yet we know he did make this transition, because not long after arriving on Iona, Columbus started building another monastery. During this time, Iona was in the middle of the sea routes from Scotland to Ireland. Trade and travel was occurring between the islands, so it turned out to be a strategic location. Many people came to Iona to learn the stories of God and to work in the scriptorium, the room where scribes preserve stories through writing, copying, and illuminating manuscripts by hand. Iona became a place that abounded in stories, both old and new, and welcomed them from far and near. One particularly striking example of this in Columbus' life was when he was sitting on top of a hill. As he looked out on the sea, he prophesied that a boat would soon arrive carrying a scholar who would perform penance. Not long afterward, his servants spotted the sail of a boat and they went down to greet the visitor. Columba had been correct. A young man, Fiachna, stepped out of the boat and flung himself at the saint's feet, confessing his sins. Fiachna recognized and owned his true story and Columba responded to him with the grace that he himself had received. Stand up, my son, and be comforted. Your sins have been forgiven, because as it is written, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. It said that Fiachna then went in peace to his next destination. In this and other instances, Columba served as a wounded healer. God had made his story whole, and now he was able to be an agent of God's shalom, receiving the stories of strangers and giving them an opportunity for a new story through God's forgiveness. As we dig into and speak our own stories in all their brokenness, we also open ourselves up so Jesus can write life-giving stories into our lives. We can receive the truth that Jesus doesn't condemn but frees us. And this, in turn, allows us to welcome the stories and truths of others so that they too can receive the same comfort and grace. Columba was also skilled at communicating God's story through poems and hymns. Celtic society highly respected its poet-storytellers, or phila, who guarded the oral stories that provided the community its roots. Columba saw this role as so important that it is said he returned to Ireland in the year 575 to attend a convention. He went specifically to speak against the High King's motion to banish the Order of Phila. Instead, he advocated for these storytellers and supported training even more people in this skill. With this act to preserve stories and storytellers, yet again Columbus' life after exile reveals how much he believed and embodied The importance of story. One of the few existing poems attributed to Columba shares some of his life story. In the poem, he weaves together elements of the heart, mind, soul, and body, revealing a holistic life in which everything worship, work, play is part of God's larger narrative.
3: that I might search the books all that would be good for my soul. At times kneeling to beloved heaven, at times psalm singing, at times contemplating the king of heaven, holy the chief. At times at work without compulsion, this would be delightful. At times plucking dullisk from the rocks. At times at fishing, at times giving food to the poor, at times in a carker. The best advice in the presence of God to me has been vouchsafed, the King whose servant I.
0: God truly expanded Columbus' story following his exile. He continued founding dozens of monasteries, where students preserved written stories as they copied and illuminated manuscripts. Some say the Book of Kells, a beautiful and elaborate copy of the Four Gospels, was later created at Iona. What's more, the oral histories about Columba's life and the poetry and hymns he wrote were shared among the islands to the north, south and beyond, all the way to England. This single monastery where Columba lived the latter half of his story carried a healing legacy as it and the many others he founded became repositories of myriad stories about God's kingdom and the lives of the saints. From Columba's personal story, God's story was shared in ever-widening circles. Though none of us have the same calling as Columba, we all have a story God's writing in our lives. As we allow God to show us the truth of our stories and how they fit into God's bigger narrative, God invites us to vulnerably share our stories with others and to receive their stories in return. In doing so, we all move toward healing and flourishing. Individually, our stories are rich, yet as we weave them together together, They more fully point to the glory of God, the story of God's kingdom, and God's good, good creation. This ever-widening narrative includes science, the story of creation, and how God wove the universe together. History, the story of humans throughout time. Art, the story of beauty shared across cultures, and so much more. We've shared many stories throughout our walks. Those of the saints and scripture, our hosts, and other companions. It may have struck you, too, how often these stories connected the heart and mind. They keep drawing us in to listen. And when we do, we learn about God, about history, about the land. And we also see the deep truths and passions that drive each storyteller's life. At times, these stories included someone's brokenness, but they also included how they saw the good and beautiful in God's creation and in the work God had given them. Like Columbus' poem, these stories showed us how all of life is part of God's story. Your story may include the wonder of science, the beauty of art, the practicality of engineering, or the earthiness of a farm the care of family, the joy of new life, the sorrow of many losses, the wounds of shame. It could include the welcome of hospitality over a meal or the sharp truth of justice. In my work with faculty at colleges and universities, I regularly see how God infuses his story into people who are pursuing all kinds of fields of study and in their personal lives. I have no doubt that God is doing likewise through your story too. So as you consider your story, how do you see God's story playing out in all areas of your life? I might be blessed to hear how God has been at work in your story. Are there particular people, places, or communities that come to mind? kind of blessing works in both ways. As you think about taking a posture of discovering God at work in other people's stories, who are some people whom you would like to ask about their story? this, our final walk comes to a close. Let's return to Iona as it is today. Columbus Monastery is no longer there. The Benedictine Order established a new monastery in the early 13th century that was then rebuilt in the 20th century. After hundreds of years worth of changes, and amidst the crowds of tourists in the village there today, It may seem a far cry from the sacred place it was when Columba and his peers were there devotedly working on the holy texts. But those who take time to look and learn about the place and the stories of its people, both past and present, might just see God in a new way. Whether standing in line for the requisite postcard or worshipping in the chapel, stories surround you in Iona. If you're looking for a quieter spot, you can walk out of the little town to one of Iona's small beaches and reflect on the stories that brought you to this place. If you're staying overnight at one of the inns, you can sit around the fire and share stories. Stories of time on the island, of connections to Columba, of how you've seen God at work in each other's lives. The island continues to be a repository where stories are gathered and preserved. Our Celtic Way has also been a repository where art and poetry, places and cultures, the Old and New Testament, and tales both epic and ordinary have drawn us closer to God. And this is a journey that doesn't end after your walk today. It's a pilgrimage, a journey to a story. As you continue on in the tradition of Deora Dei, as someone who voluntarily chooses to be a stranger, an exile, a wanderer for God. Where is God inviting you to wander and continue on pilgrimage? Whose stories will you listen to? What stories will you share and receive along the way? When you reach the end of our audio journey today, you'll be walking deeper into the true story God is writing in your life. For some, it may be a kind of new beginning. For others, it may feel like part of a continuing journey. For all of us, it's the way God is inviting us to learn more about our story, more about the stories of others, and ultimately, more about God's grand story in which we all have a part. Whatever your story includes, wherever your heart meets the heart of God in truth, the world needs to hear it. Now, let's close this last walk of Via Divina the Celtic Way with the same blessing from the Northumbria Community's Celtic Daily Prayer Book that we used on our first walk together. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you, wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing, once again, into our doors.
4: Hi, I'm Sarah Schilling. And I'm Bethany Givens-Blankesporer. And we are the co-directors and lead writers of Via Divina, the Celtic Way. The gift of this pilgrimage was made possible by the talents, hard work, time, and creativity of so many people. First, we'd like to thank
5: our hosts, Orlando Crespo and Kathy Twan-McLean, who offered their stories, perspective, and writing to shape each root and branch, as well as the many
4: hours they spent recording. We had a skilled team of session writers, Jamie Noyd, Shermy Hinders, Alexis Barnhart, Rachel Guo, and Tom Sharp. Each of them also recorded and shared a personal story that enriched our walks. Speaking of personal
5: stories, we'd like to thank Sarah Timberlake and Francina De Potter for sharing theirs and Cortland Hopkins for his consultation and First Nations retellings of the
4: adventures of Honored Man and Handsome One. Bringing this pilgrimage to life in this audio guide form were people like Josh Harper, who co-wrote the sensory warm-up exercises, curated the music selection, and managed the audio production process. Joseph Garcia Menacol, whose incredible sound engineering wove together the stories, scripture, and music and Adri Fontaine, who not only helped with the recording process, but also produced the Visio Divina videos and built the website. On the topic
5: of folks who played multiple roles, we'd like to thank Chelsea Van Eck and Anna Garcia Menekal, who were essential behind the scenes from the very beginning and whose contributions made both our team's experience
4: and yours better. When it comes to the Celtic Way's visual beauty, Courtney Herwicks from 2100 Productions designed our graphics. And we are forever grateful to Betty Dickinson for her original paintings and Visio Divina exercises.
5: Via Divina, the Celtic Way was a collaboration among InterVarsity's study abroad, faculty ministry, and spiritual formation departments. If you'd like to participate in other digital pilgrimages offered by InterVarsity, visit intervarsity.org slash via dash divina.
4: Thank you for wandering with us and until next time, may Christ be beside you, before you, behind you, within you, beneath you, above you, to the right and to the left of you. May Christ be in your lying, your sitting, your rising, and may Christ be in your walking.